As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hello, welcome to the All Seen and Chapman podcast on The Athletic. As usual, we'll bring you exclusive insight and stories from our team of writers. Coming up today, things are going from bad to worse for Arsenal as they lost again at the weekend. David will bring you the latest on the feeling at the Emirates around Arteta and his squad. The usually tight-lipped Mo Salah has been talking with the Spanish media, so we'll speak to The Athletic Simon Hughes about what that might mean with regards to Salah's contract situation and... This may not surprise you. There's been another head coach sacked at Watford. We'll get the inside story from Adam Leventhal on Vladimir Ivic's departure and the arrival of Cisco Munoz. Read all the articles we discuss on today's podcast in full over on The Athletic. And right now, if you subscribe to The Athletic, you can give another subscription as a gift for free. It's the perfect present for any football fan. So enjoy great analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, as well as ad-free versions of all our podcasts. It's the perfect present for yourself and someone else. Just go to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman. And I'm back on this podcast feed on Thursday alongside Matt Slater for our new podcast, The Business of Sport. So no weekly column, David, this week, which means the only story that I can really talk to you about is your last piece, or is the <laughs> last piece on The Athletic, rather, that you contributed to. And the title was Arsenal FC, The Decline. Yeah, Merry was Christmas, that, was, that dramatic, was that dramatic enough? Yeah. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. No, no, yeah. <laughs> it's going to be made into a movie. It probably could, couldn't it? Uh, yeah, exactly. So where are we at? <laughs> well, Mikel Arteta has been speaking just before we came on, on this podcast and, and he seems in defiant mood. He expressed that he feels the support of the club and that's accurate. Look, we've seen that you support until you don't. And that was the case with Unai Emery, who did receive the backing of the Arsenal hierarchy until he was sacked. I do think the situation with Mikel Arteta is different, uh, despite Arsenal being in a worse position than they were under Unai Emery. Arsenal have no appetite to make another managerial change. Uh, Moreover, they believe in Mikel Arteta, what he's doing, his vision and philosophy, where he's trying to take the club, in a way I don't think they ever quite did under Unai Emery. I think they had 
reservations about Emery's ways of working, his, his methods, his communication, both verbally in terms of his English and also the messages he was trying to express. I think they are genuinely very happy with what they see in Arteta's work. Of course, they're not happy with the results. The processes, though, are, are improved. They have many issues that they need to contend with. Some of them are more short-term and some of them have built over time. We've talked quite a lot recently about the culture and that's a key part of the piece Arsenal FC The Decline that you mention uh, and people should go and have a read of that because it charts how a lot of standards have slipped over the years and you know issues dating back to the Arsene Wenger time, uh, the Emery era uh, and now Arteta too some deep-rooted problems that really need to be addressed if Arteta or any other manager is going to succeed. When I said there are more immediate issues, yeah. For example, the squad is too big and that means that too many players are left out every week and that creates uh, a bit of poison around the place. Understandably, it would happen at any club. Players who aren't playing aren't going to be happy. They're going to whinge amongst themselves because they want to be playing. There are different groups at Arsenal, like at every club. Often it's geared around, I don't know, where you've played previously, what language you speak, who your friends are, and you naturally are going to see different factions emerging. Um, Arsenal, from a football perspective, just need to grind their way out of this terrible situation. And I've talked quite a lot about how Arteta, I believe, needs to be a little bit more pragmatic. And But they don't look like a squad of players who would grind their way out of anything, do they? Well, come on, that, 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 that's, a, that's a fair point. But come on, they, they are they have more than enough quality in their ranks to be in a higher position than they are now. And while I do think th this looks like a relegation scrap, they're not too good to go down. They are better than those teams around them. They have more quality, especially when Aubameyang and Thomas Partey come back to fitness. And they showed hunger and pressing and work rate and commitment when Arteta took over. They they showed it in his first 10 matches before the lockdown. Yes, they had some, some lows after the restart, but then they picked up and won the FA Cup. They won the Community Shield. They can raise their level and that's Arteta's job to get the best out of what he has at his disposal now. Beyond that, they need to start working on this squad in January big time and then in the next transfer window that the summer of 2021 and beyond. This no one likes to hear this and they've heard it so many times which has made them weary and, and question the the authenticity of it but they're going to need multiple windows and time for Edu as technical director to really implement his vision and for Arteta to coach the team that he is given and we shouldn't just say given because he's played a key role in building the the, the squad he sees in front of him now he he welcomed the position the change in title from head coach to first team manager. We can't absolve Mikel Arteta, but he and Edu do need time to build this project and it will be on their shoulders that it either succeeds or fails. But what I meant is they need to just scrape to a slightly better position and then address over time the more fundamental problems that have been bubbling under the surface for a long time if they've got any hope of getting out of this decline as opposed to the crisis. You, you said within the club that, that there's a feeling that this is different to the period under Unai Emery, for, for example. Do they recognise um, the, that, that it will take time? 
And a, and a second part to that, really, just because it might take time doesn't mean that you don't need to do things urgently. So there will be Arsenal fans thinking, why did we not even make a move to try and get Shabozlai, who we've been talking about a lot on this podcast? You know what I mean? It's all right. It takes time to rebuild a squad, but it all that you can also have a sense of urgency in trying to get people in. Correct. And that's why I think they will try and use the January market if they can. It's going to be really difficult, like most Januaries are, especially when you're a struggling team, uh, especially in this financial climate and and the COVID era. It's not going to be an easy market for anybody. In terms of Sabozlai, that was a player who they considered as one of their options. Actually, let, let me just draw it back. In an ideal world, Arsenal would have planned around the summer of 2020 bringing in a creative player to replace the outgoing Mesut Ozil when his contract expires, to bring in a right-sided central defender because they will have up to three leaving in David Luiz, Socrates and Mustafi, who, all of who, whom's contract expires. And that, that, that would have been their hope, those two main positions. Given what's happening now, they are trying to escalate some of those plans, mainly around the lack of creativity. So within that, Sabozlai was a consideration. Now, there's no guarantee you're going to sign that player who may have always wanted to go to Leipzig where he's ended up. And Arsenal, as Tom Warville wrote on The Athletic, had several technical reservations, not massive criticisms. He's a, he's a young player, Sabozlai, who's been playing in Austria and would have taken time to develop. He wouldn't have been ready to start every match for Arsenal if he had come in in January. He would have taken time and Arsenal will be looking for an immediate impact from the market. They do ha- have other options for that creativity position and it's whether Edu is able to pull off a signing that can come in and make an immediate impact now. But the bigger immediate priority for Arsenal than actually bringing players in is probably getting players out. So make another attempt to get Mesut Ozil out. Will they succeed? I think probably not because he has been very clear in wanting to stay until the end of his contract in the summer. Trying to get, again, Socrates out. We don't know if he'll agree to that. Getting Saliba out on loan, getting others, potentially the likes of Reese Nelson and and Emil Smith-Rowe, younger players who need game time, get them out on, on loan as well. Possibly some sales, but I don't know. It's going to be a very difficult market to sell. And so, yeah, that is the immediate action that they need around the squad but in terms of immediate action on the pitch that that of course is Mikel Arteta's job and yes they know how urgent this situation is but the words are cheap they they need to you know put their actions uh, ahead of their words and even if they tried to bring people in in January how attractive are they at the moment I mean you you talk to to agents and you talk to executives and you know how this works and the piece you wrote with James McNicholas last week pointed out that Arsenal's standing has been on a decline for a long time now. How attra- Without getting a whole load of Arsenal fans giving me stick, genuinely, how attractive an option are they at the moment? Well, nobody's going to be overly attracted to the league position they're in now, but from a broader perspective, I do think Arsenal are a, a very attractive proposition. One, there are the traditional factors of their style of play, their location in London and I have said a number of times they have enormous potential that is going year after year without being fulfilled. It's not an easy task, but everything from their facilities to their 
DNA and history and reputation, style of football, giving young players a chance, their location in London, their stadium, their training ground. They, they've got everything to go far and, and people want to be a part of that. They've tended to pay very good money. So that talks, speaks volumes to, to a lot of players and, and their representatives around the world. And so I don't think that is is a, is going to prevent them from, from signing the sort of targets they'll be looking to go for. I, I, I still think they're an attractive proposition. They're not in the Champions League. That takes a load of players out of their pool of potential candidates. But from people I speak to within the game, I don't hear them saying, no, nobody wants to join Arsenal now. It just doesn't work like that. I guess what you could say is if, if you've got a number of clubs in few at the moment, like a Shabozlai, uh, why would you pick Arsenal? That's a That's a fair... That's a fair shout. But uh, the sort of players that Arsenal go for and target, um, you know, take Thomas Partey, for example. He could have gone to a number of clubs. Uh, he had a release clause that everybody knew about. He was playing Champions League football with Atletico Madrid. Yet, and I know Arsenal weren't struggling like this at the time he signed, but he wanted to come to them. Their reputation, their background, their style of football, how concerted they were in, in trying to get him, that they put their money where their mouth was and, and triggered his claws. They offered him a good salary. I think that example shows that Arsenal are still attractive, but <laughs> it goes without saying that the way things are going on the pitch, they're going to become less and less attractive. It's pretty clear to see. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We're going to speak to the Athletics Liverpool writer Simon Hughes about Mo Salah's future in a moment. First, we just want to play you a few minutes of a special documentary we have produced for Spotify's giant podcast. It's the story of the first American to own a British football club a man called Terry Smith, who bought Chester City in 1999 and not long after made himself the manager. A quite remarkable story. Here's a little taster for you. So he brought this kid in from Iceland and I said, what's his assets? And he said, oh, he's a good crosser, he's a good finisher and he's, he's a good header of the ball. So we put a session on. He, he couldn't shoot, couldn't cross it and he couldn't edit. That's Kevin Ratcliffe, the last man to captain Everton to a league title. By the summer of 1999, he'd been manager of Chester City for four years. And then, along came a new owner with a dream. This is Terry Smith. He's coached teams to honours in England, Europe and the United States. One of football's most celebrated coaches. American football, that is. Now he wants to conquer another sport. Journalist Dave Powell is a lifelong Chester City fan and he remembers Terry Smith's arrival at the club only too well. The quality was so poor, it wasn't good enough for North West County, some of the players that were being brought in. And he was putting some of these players on to Kevin early doors. Three sessions that we put on, there was a shout from the sideline from Sean Reid, Peter Reid's brother. Right, Gaffer, we brought the lad in from Iceland when we bring in the lad in from Tesco's. Terry Smith was an American businessman, a former player for the NFL's New England Patriots, and in the summer of 1999, he became the saviour of Chester City FC. I think I've probably got, uh, you know, more years of coaching experience than just about anyone. Not you know, in soccer. Not in, no, not in soccer. 
Robbie Clegg was the matchday announcer at Chester's Diva Stadium. He signed a player called Junior Agogo and he came into the PA room and he said, I've got this recording. He said, every time Junior scores a goal, we're to play this song and it was wake me up before you go. So it was just, just absolutely stuff like that. It was Terry Smith all over. It was becoming farcical and like a comedy, really. Why would anybody in their right mind buy Chester City? <laughs> Well, I thought, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, in any business, if you look at something that's not being run correctly, um, then you see a lot of potential. And we, you know, Chester, for, to start with, we love the city. And um, and I've been bringing my children across from Stockport to Chester Zoo for years. And, and, uh, and You we... love the city so much you bought the football team. <laughs> Eleven years before John W. Henry, six years before Malcolm Glazer, Terry Smith was the first American to own an English football club. This is the story of Chester's American dream. A dream that became a nightmare. Uh, if you want to listen to the full episode, all you need to do is head to Spotify and search for Giant. Simon Hughes wrote the story on Terry Smith for The Athletic, uh, and he joins us now. We'll talk Liverpool uh, in just a moment with you, Simon, but... Um it is, a, it is a, even 20 years on, it is a remarkable story. It is. It's, it's an incredible story. I mean, Chester or Chester City, as they were then, is a club that's gone through a fair amount of turmoil since, you know, with, with various owners and different ownership models and you know, very up and down. But even when you listen to the to the voices in that story, you just realise how incredible it is. I mean, the fact that a guy with no football background thinks he could, well, first of all, be the owner and then become the manager in a, in, a, in a very tough environment in the old Division 3 as it was then. I just think it was just the, the, one of the balmiest things we've seen in, in English football. Let, let's face it, English football's seen quite a lot of crazy <laughs> things happen over the last 20 years particularly, but I think that's right up there. Uh, let's move on to, uh, to Liverpool then. Your piece on Saturday was titled Salah's flirting with Barcelona and what it means for his contract negotiations. Just wonder what the reaction to that has been. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, there seems to be quite a few people in sort of denial about about why why Salah would go and speak to a Spanish newspaper in, in AS or AS newspaper, which is obviously a Madrid-based newspaper. I've tried to explain in the piece that Salah doesn't speak to anyone really I mean he, he hasn't spoken to any any British journalist since his first season when he was at Liverpool and he, he was very reluctant then even off the back of, of his success of all the goals that he scored he, you could tell he didn't really want to talk and since then I think he's only granted two interviews so when he gives interviews there's always a reason for it and obviously nestled within that interview there are some very interesting points about obviously his unhappiness around not being given the captaincy in a game at Michelin's and then obviously mentioning the sort of the, the attraction of Barcelona and Real Madrid within, within, within a couple of his answers as well so I do think that you know the fact that the interview's taken place on Merseyside in the middle of a pandemic with cameras it seems very, very orchestrated and, and done for a reason for me. So yeah, I mean, the, the reaction's been mixed. I think a lot of people are prepared to sort of, to listen and, and, and understand that there is context about why people do interviews. I think at the moment, even trying to get an interview out of Liverpool or any football clubs becoming increasingly hard, you know, because of the, the this living situation that we have. So to be able to do it in person, with uh, this very particular newspaper seems quite extraordinary to me. He's under contract until 2023, right, Si? So what do you see actually happening with him? Yeah, well, it's it's an interesting age. And I wrote about this a little while ago about how 
a lot of sort of Liverpool's players are reaching the late twenties at the same time, really, which is obviously good because obviously they're going to have a, a strong team for a couple of years. But clearly, they're going to have, the club's going to have to have an eye on the future. So, if Mohamed Salah was to see out that contract that he's currently on, he'd be thirty-one now. Obviously, we've seen a situation with with Genie Wijnaldum, who who's thirty and looks increasingly increasingly likely to leave next summer on a free transfer. So, Salah is aware that his next contract is going to be potentially the most lucrative. Event of his career um, and will time down for his best years. Equally, he also knows that at Barcelona and Real Madrid at the moment that there's there's two contrasting situations. Obviously, at Barcelona's financial situation is is, is, is well documented, but they also have a big presidential election coming uh, next month where we're going to see all sorts of potential candidates making big promises. Meanwhile, and I must stress again, the, the newspaper where he did the interview was is a Madrid-based newspaper which has a, has, a, has a big focus on Real Madrid. You know, that, that they've been trying to sign Kylian Mbappe for a while, that they do have money to spend, but whether it'll stretch quite as far as Kylian Mbappe, I'm not quite sure yet. So, yeah, I, I, I think there's two ways of looking at it. He, quite conceivably, could be using this to try and get a better deal at Liverpool to tie himself down, to become accepted I suppose as one of the the leading players at Liverpool because at the moment it, it sort of feels to me that Liverpool if if, if, Alice, if Alisson Becker doesn't play obviously Virgil van Dijk's not playing Sadio Mane and Salah they're the, they're the four sort of main players but Salah I think he desperately he desperately wants this sort of personal accolade. I know it might be it might it might seem quite unappealing to a lot of people, but he is driven by personal success, whether we like it or not. And he obviously sees that collective success is key to to his own personal uh, success as well. So I think personally, I mean, I, I obviously think at the moment that Liverpool is probably the best place for him because that they're in a much better position than Real Madrid or Barcelona. But equally, he 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 it was quite interesting on in the Middle East yesterday. It, it, it was an interview. With with Mohamed Abu Trika, who's is one of his heroes, I mentioned him in the piece. Who was a player who was sort of the the, the player in Egypt who everybody loved before. It's, it's a long and winding story, this one, but basically he was placed on a terrorist watch list and now lives uh, in exile in Dubai, I think it is. So he gave an interview yesterday where he spoke a little bit about how he'd been in contact with Mohamed Salah and he said that he's, he's, he's actually very unhappy about one element of his of his life at Liverpool and he wouldn't go into detail about it, which I thought was quite interesting. It hasn't really been picked up yet by the British media, but he said that you know he feels that if he'd have been at Real Madrid or Barcelona and achieved what he's achieved the last couple of seasons at Liverpool, he would have become the World Player of the Year. Well, I sort of, yeah, I mean, I, I can sort of see that line of thinking, but, uh, you know, you can also poke holes at it as well, because obviously it hasn't been a great time for either of those clubs. Whether he could have could have taken them to that level, I, I'm not quite sure. He, he sounds, uh, the the uh, Egyptian uh, hero of Salah, he sounds like the next feature for you to do a long-form article <laughs> on it and me, and me to voice the documentary, to be honest with you. Sam. Yes, I totally agree. Yeah. It's an incredible, it's an incredible story it really is right we'll do we'll, we'll look more into that shall we let's um I, I mean Salah isn't unusual in being a footballer who values individual success as well I mean there are there are plenty around at the moment but as you say the power feels like it's all with Liverpool and I would imagine they're fairly relaxed about all of this aren't they and if and if a decision was to be made on on his future 
would, would that be Klopp or would that be Michael Edwards or a bit of both? It's a bit, a bit of both, really. I mean, Liverpool would never make a decision that, that Jürgen Klopp didn't want. But he, he's in unfamiliar territory as well, Jürgen Klopp. This is the next challenge for him, really, because when at his previous clubs, when he was at Mainz, he obviously had his best players taken away from him. And when he was at Borussia Dortmund, you know, the, the sort of, he had one slash one and a half great teams that he sort of built at that club. But he, he was always... He was, there was always the potential for his best players to either go to Bayern Munich or Real Madrid. At Liverpool, the situation is slightly different. So, obviously, he's not going to lose players to any of the other Premier League clubs now because Liverpool are the leading team. There's still the threat of Barcelona and Real Madrid, I suppose, but obviously Liverpool have, have done have done better than them over the last couple of seasons, really. They've been more convincing anyway in Europe, I would say. So... It's, it's new territory for him to try and decide and decipher when is the best time to let go. And I, I think that, you know, from Liverpool's point of view, it, it's, even though I agree, I do think that, that Liverpool holds more power in the, in this, in this discussion. I think that one of the big problems is that Liverpool's revenues through the pandemic has diminished considerably. So they're not really in a position to, with two and a half years left on a contract to say, well, here you go. I mean, he's, he's one of the best plays, players at the club, if not the best play, player anyway, to go and extend his contract further at this moment in time. So the timing is very interesting. Um, I mean, I obviously spoke to people at the club on, on Saturday and, you know, the message coming back was that, that Jürgen Klopp was was fine with, with, with sort of what he said. But I, I do think it's one to watch over the, the coming months, particularly ahead of the summer, because I think there's obviously big change coming at Barcelona, potentially with a new president who's going to have to make some some major changes to that club to, to get them back on back in the right direction because they're miles away at the moment. And, and equally, Real Madrid, I, I think that you know that there's going to be big changes there soon enough as well. So it is going to be an interesting story and it is one to follow. I don't think, I think a few people have sort of battered it away as, as just Mohamed Salah speaking openly, you know, to a, to a newspaper. But genuinely, I mean, I, I can't emphasize this enough. He does not do interviews and anything that he does do, it, it, it's for a reason. So... I think um, I think it's definitely definitely one to watch. He's also a very intriguing character, Sai. You've mentioned the individual accolades. I think there was a story that he he was quite annoyed at not being named the captain recently. He doesn't seem to hide his feelings particularly well. We've seen a lot of talk about his, you know, how happy or unhappy he looks at certain points on the pitch. We we saw, I think it was a bit of a tete-a-tete with uh, Sadio Mane a couple of seasons ago uh, away to Burnley. What, what do you make of that sort of side of him? And it, is it difficult for Liverpool to deal with him? Quite delicate. Yeah, I don't think he's a difficult person to deal with because I think he he's the sort of person. My my impression, speaking to people who who know him, obviously a lot better than me. If he's frustrated about something, he will say it and he'll express it. But he's intelligent enough to know when he's wrong as well. But I mean, I, I've, I've got to I've got to be honest. I mean, just, just this is just me looking at the situation from from afar. You know, his complaints about the captaincy. I think he's got to open his eyes a little bit. I mean, let's not forget here that he he missed one important game at least because of his actions around when he went back to Egypt. And no, I can understand why you'd want to go to your brother's, you know, a family member's uh, a family member's wedding. I can understand that. But there's also still a responsibility. You know, if he potentially could have infected a lot of Liverpool players when he returned if, he, if he'd have got it wrong. So the idea that Jürgen Klopp is going to hand him the captaincy off the back of that, I mean, has he not been listening to Jürgen Klopp for the last three seasons? It's just not the sort of thing Jürgen Klopp would do. It would undermine a lot of the messages that he puts across, you know. So I, I think he's got to 
probably step back a little bit and, 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 and think about that a little bit because one person we haven't mentioned here, of course, is the role of his agent, who, who's a very influential figure, Rami Abbas, who will have been fully aware of that interview being taken place and is obviously very keen for Mohamed Salah to become the player that he thinks he, he can become and the player that Salah thinks that he can become. Salah thinks, and he's right to think, because he is an absolutely brilliant player. I think he, in some ways, in, in terms of the wider public's acceptance, he's still not viewed at the level that he, he should be viewed at because of what happened at Chelsea, bizarrely. I think because he, he obviously didn't didn't quite well. He he failed there, didn't he? So I think in people's heads they don't think him in the same light as they should. But he's a hugely influential player at Liverpool, a brilliant player on, on the pitch, well liked off the pitch. But he's you know he's very strong minded and strong willed, and I, I don't think you come from where he's come from without having a certain view on the way things should be in the environment that he should be working in. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't get the impression he's a difficult player to manage, but I, I do get the impression that you need to engage with him and and, and, and explain things for, for the way they, you know, um, and be clear with him because uh, I, he's not the sort of player to hide his feelings, put it that way. Uh, we better let you go, haven't we? You, you're off to do the uh, Recall the Liverpool <laughs> podcast, which presumably will focus on uh, Liverpool fearing a Manchester United title challenge, I'm guessing. <laughs> really. Presumably, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, good to have you on side. Talk Thanks, you Simon. Soon. Cheers. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 125 days and 22 games was all it took for Watford to decide they'd seen enough of Vladimir Ivic as the Serbian was fired after Saturday's 2-0 defeat away at Huddersfield. He was swiftly replaced with the Spaniard Cisco Munoz, whose most recent managerial achievement is winning the Georgian Premier League with Dinamo Tbilisi. Adam Leventhal is the Athletics Watford correspondent. He was sat right behind the Watford hierarchy on Saturday. That was fun. On Saturday at Huddersfield, watching it all unfold before his eyes. I was going to say, how has it come to this again? But basically, here we go again. Yes, it is a well-trodden path, isn't it? Unfortunately for for Watford, yeah, they've had to they've had to change again. I mean, it was interesting, as you mentioned, you know, being in the in the director's box. It was simply by virtue of the fact that uh, my my seat had been overbooked in the uh, in the press box, so I got sort of bumped out into the into the back row of the director's box, which did have its advantages. I had a comfy seat, and I I did have a sort of a, a front row view of of the varying emotions of uh, Gino Pozzo in the director's box and uh, Cristiano Gioretta, who's the sporting director and the, the chief executive and chairman, Scott Duxbury. And they were they were living the game and they were just becoming more and more frustrated um, about what was what was happening out on the pitch. But it was sort of on, on various different levels because obviously there was, you know, a, a player, senior player in Troy Deeney, the captain who'd been who'd been dropped. There was also mistakes on the pitch, which was out of the control really of Vladimir Ivic and, you know, the the board, if, if Ben Foster passes it to an opponent and they just have to slot the ball home, it's 
it's not anything that anyone could do. And if Etienne Capu slices the ball into the back of the net, then, you know, what can you do about that? But I think that this was almost the, the straw that broke the camel's back and it had been a, a gradual drip, drip, drip of negativity, really, under Vladimir Ivic. And although it didn't last long, they'd sort of given it as long as they could. I think that's that's basically the long and short of it. Adam, like people outside will just ask, what on earth is going on here? I mean, I think Nigel Pearson's their longest serving manager of the year, but th- this perpetual hiring and firing, I- I'm already wondering when you're going to be writing the piece of the, the new guy, Cisco, being sacked. What's the point in this? It doesn't seem to make any sense. Well, look, I, I think, you know, if you if you chart back to, to 2012, I'm, I'm not going to run you through all the managers because that would take ages. But, you know, if you, if you look at it, it has worked. You know, initially they had Gianfranco Zola and then they made very quick transitions and they, you know, they happened upon Slavisa Jukanovic who, who got them up into the Premier League. And then per season, initially it was, it was one head coach per season and, and that seemed to work. I think if you then look at last season, that's where they really lost grip of what was going on. You know, Javi Grafia being in charge, then bringing back Kike Sanchez Flores, which was widely regarded outside of the dressing room, but also inside the dressing room as being the wrong move. That then followed. Then going against their previous model of, of having foreign coaches, they brought in Nigel Pearson. He got that initial bounce. But then as he was getting his sort of feet under the table, it was a bit uncomfortable and that blew up very, very quickly. They then tried to bring in a, a disciplinarian in Vladimir Ivic and that seemed to sort of, I think, suck the joy out of the place a little bit. And if you look at, you know, the the, the, the difficult time that we're having, you know, as, you know, everyone is is having in the current climate, I think from the, from the player's point of view, yes, they should be able to toe the line. And I don't think that Vladimir Ivic's ways were you know completely at odds with how some players were were happy to to operate but i think in general terms if it's getting all a little bit monotonous and it's all getting a little bit too much and they're not having enough of a breather in between a very very hectic schedule in terms of their physical but also their mental well-being i think that something just had to give in the end and they need someone who's going to try and bring a bit of joy into the whole thing and also not overcomplicate the championship. These are essentially Premier League players who up until last season were doing pretty well and they were competitive Premier League players. They should have enough to be succeeding in the championship and taking the game to opponents and not worrying too much about it. Go toe to toe and hopefully you're going to have enough. So I think that's basically what they have now tried to do. Switch from a, a bit of a fun sponge into a, a bit of a motivator. <laughs> but how much research are they putting into these guys before they bring them in? Because we all had to laugh when when Vladimir Ivic was appointed as Watford manager because, I mean, I can remember, we all saw the photo. I've never seen anybody look so miserable at getting a job in my life. When he got Manager of the Month award, my God. I mean, you'd have thought he'd just been awarded worst manager of the year. So... I do wonder when they drop their shortlist, how much research are they doing? It's a good point. I think the the intentions did have some sort of validity to them because they needed someone who was going to come in and try and instill some discipline in a side that had been relegated. And also his MO previously was at uh, Maccabi Tel Aviv. 
was being able to deal with a side in transition, maybe trying to utilise peripheral players if you were going to be losing a lot of, of your players after relegation and things like that. So there were elements to it that fitted. But I just think that the, the personality didn't fit in the end. And in the grand scheme of things, yes, I know it is another sacking. And I may be able to speak far more far more calmly and, and assuredly about, yeah, it's all right, guys, don't panic. We're used to this because I've sort of seen it happen over and over again. And there might be more exasperation from outside the, the Watford bubble because people just go, look, what, what the hell are they doing? But I think the fact that they have been able to keep into the, the the playoff positions you know still pushing for promote for for promotion with a with a squad that essentially was playing under a head coach which they hadn't really built any bond with i think it does bode well so then you actually go well right hang on a minute let's let's try something different and start to maybe try and bring a little bit more fun into this and we should be able to kick on so they've basically made a decision on, well, this this side isn't operating in the way it should be. They're playing a possession-based game, which doesn't really need to be happening in, in the championship. Let's try and switch it. But at the end of the day, if it doesn't work again, they will probably change again. But it is becoming, I can understand, a, a little bit farcical from the outside of, of Watford. What do the players make of this? And also, is it very difficult for the fans to get behind and really connect with a club that's acting like this constantly? I think more and more so that is becoming the case f for the fans, uh, you know, especially, you know, reading the comments on, on The Athletic, under the articles, you know, that there has been a few sort of saying, look, this is making me disconnect with the club. I mean, it's already disconnected enough because, you know, fans aren't able to to go to games. So there is that distance. And also the, the football that they've been seeing as well has has been sort of causing a, a little bit of a lack of motivation and and just thinking well this isn't much fun so i can understand why the fans are becoming a bit disillusioned they need the the hierarchy at the club to get this one right because especially if you think about it at this time a squad coming down from the premier league in a in a in inverted commas a, a weaker championship there aren't any real big guns in there aside from the teams that came down from from the top division so it should be one that you can get back up in you know this is an opportunity to to strike right back and get up so they can't they can't get this one wrong but yeah it, it's just very difficult you have to sort of you have to only look forward because it's it's almost like being at the top of a of a tower and having vertigo and thinking look, look I can't look down because it's scary if the Pozzos look back at what they've done in their recent wake it doesn't make good viewing and they have to just simply now look forward and just hope that they can, you know, keep their feet and and kick on to greater heights. I suppose. I, I mean, I'm, I've interviewed Scott Duxbury many times, I, I, and I find him a very engaging interviewee. Do you think he is frustrated about some of the stuff he is having to do, or is that an unfair question? No, I, I yeah, I would have thought so. I, I don't think that anyone is going to be able to look at some of the things that they've had to deal with and have any sort of professional pride over the fact that you're you're having to sack head coaches that you have invested not only money but faith in um it doesn't it doesn't reflect well on the on the on the process i mean you know having touched on it earlier on when you said you know are they are they doing the right research they they are effectively but i think what is what is missing is is the ability to to give these people time 
and give them faith and let them fail and let there be a period of mediocrity. Maybe it is reflective of of, of high standards that, that uh, they, they aren't willing to allow a sort of a slip in form and uh, behavior or if they don't like something they're they're very sort of quick to to be ruthless but then i suppose the the counter argument to that is well relegation happened last season and and that didn't go particularly well so i i think on the face of it they will be disappointed i know that you know across the board in in the in the boardroom relegation hit them hard they took that very sort of personally and it was a it was a it was a deep cut and i think that they will be content with where Watford are at the moment in terms of their position. And they now will be, I think, just sort of fingers crossed that they've they've made the right call at the right time. I think that's all that they can have. I, I think that there is so much criticism of the model. And, you know, I, I had a conversation with my mum earlier on um, and she was saying, Fan, fans are just laughing at us now. You know, you know, people are laughing at us. And, and I just think, well... Yeah, that is the case, but but now they have to they have to get this right. But I I do sort of feel a little bit like a broken record because we, we've said it before that you know they have to get this next appointment right. But they just they just keep on coming, don't they? I, I know they want a different atmosphere around the place, as you said. And how how much there are fun characters within English football as well is what I'm saying. So could could they? And there are very successful managers within English football that you that you think. Would they not have been a more safer bet for them to have a look at rather than where they have gone here? I think it's a fair a fair argument, and I think that that's what a lot of people will be thinking. But I I think if you if you look back at the appointment of Nigel Pearson, that went against the grain. They didn't normally do that, and I think that the fact that it didn't work out and there was maybe a bit of a clash of of personalities, they've now reverted back to what they know uh, a younger motivational head coach maybe yes a little bit obscure but i've been digging into uh, cisco Minos, um today uh, <laughs> things come thick and fast i'm writing a, another piece about him you know and his background and the way that he is you know in terms of a, of a footballer he had great success with valencia um he was a, a player under rafa benitez when they won the the uefa cup they won la liga he had you know extensive experience playing in in spain being in you know high caliber dressing rooms and now he's starting you know his his managerial career and he had success in georgia yes okay it's only georgia but you know there's european competitions that he played in uh, as well and i've spoken to his his former captain going back to the answer that i didn't give to david when he asked about how the players sort of uh, have dealt with with things of late i think that that's what was what has been missing with with vladimir ivich that they need a head coach that can connect with them on on a proper level um there can be a bit of unity that everyone can be a bit more on the on the same page rather than a a him and us sort of environment and just looking at at um cisco as i'm going to call him i i just think that he does have an opportunity as an experienced european player yes he's not had a, a lot of jobs but he can come in with confidence that he can start to sort of put his philosophy in place and just not overcomplicate things. Get on the front foot, play attacking football and enjoy it and motivate them and be a, a bit more of a, a smiley face in the dressing room. It, it sounds very simple, but I think that's, you know, in this emotional time, if we can, if, if, a, if a head coach can come in and just bring a little bit of feel good to the whole thing, then I, I think it can make a big difference. But let's just provisionally book me in 
on the podcast in four weeks' time, just, <laughs> just in case. <laughs> just finally, Adam, um, talking of dressing room, Troy Deeney, mm. uh, he's been quoted again and uh, there seems to be uh, never a dull moment with him at Watford. Yes. Look, uh, you know, he, he has um, uh, a weekly breakfast appearance that he will he will make and he's been outlining some of the background that I touched upon in the in the piece um that that was running over the weekend on the athletic about the the situation with Vladimir Ivic and why he was dropped from the side it appears as if it was you know miscommunication that essentially led to this divide between the captain and the coach, Troy Deeney, having um, a massage after being dropped, saying that he was going to meet the head coach and then the rendezvous not happening and that seemingly sort of cooling the relationship between the two of them and then there not being any um, communication in between that that time and then kick off in the game and then him not being called from the bench and, and all this sort of stuff. I think Troy, he's a big fish in a, in a relatively small pond. Um, he is maybe a little bit too powerful in the dressing room but at the moment he is an important member of that dressing room because he is a motivational character and if he is doing the the things that he does best on the pitch being a fulcrum for other attackers around him maybe that are a little bit more mobile yes he's got a decent touch but he can feed others and get in the box and score goals and he can bang in penalties for fun then he's still a vital character his his football is what I think Watford fans are more interested in now and hopefully we hear, although we probably won't, we hear less of his opinions and see more of his actions on, on the field because I think he will understand that as well. He's in a difficult, he's put himself in a difficult situation by having such a, a loud mouthpiece, but he will need to just do his talking on the pitch in the main. And I think that that's what will make Watford fans far more happier than than hearing too much inside detail. Leave that to... Leave that to the athletic rather than for, for Troy to let it all out, I suppose. <laughs> what a very good place to leave it. Excellent. The plug as well. Well done, Adam. Talk no soon, yeah. as you say, yeah. I would imagine. Most probably. Cheers. Uh, right, that's it. I'm alongside Matt Slater for a Business of Sport podcast on Thursday. Uh, and David uh, will be back next week. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. <laughs> <laughs>